Chapter 2. The Historical Books After the books of Moses, the Bible provides several books which relate different epochs and perspectives on the history of God's people under the Old Covenant. We often refer to these as the historical books. While that may not sound exciting, the stories in them generally are. Many well-known Bible stories come from this part of the scripture. Joshua and Jericho, Gideon's fleece, Samson and Delilah, David and Goliath, Solomon, and more. In each of these instances, the hero is usually also in some way a picture of the Messiah to come. In other words, we see Jesus everywhere in the Bible, but only clearly revealed in person when we get to the Gospels. The historical books cover the period from the establishment of the people in the Promised Land, probably around 1400 BC, through the time of their captivity in Babylon, beginning in the 600s BC, and until they return from captivity, mid-400s BC. The books include Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, then two books each of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, thus 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and so on. The first historical book has a unique connection to the books of Moses. Joshua had been selected by God to lead the children of Israel into the promised land because Moses was not allowed to enter. The book of Joshua recounts his exploits, most of which include simply trusting God and allowing him to win battles for the people. Jericho was the first of the great cities in their path, and its world-class impregnable walls fell by mere shouts because the Israelites simply obeyed and trusted God. This was to be the pattern by which the Israelites conquered the entire promised land. The rest of Joshua contains similar stories. It eventually ends with the leadership drawing lots to portion out the land to every family in Israel. The book stresses twice that God had fulfilled his promises in full to the Israelites. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45, and chapter 23, verse 15. Just as the book makes clear that God fulfilled his promise, it also adds a stern warning. Now that they had possession of the land, it was their responsibility to live in such a way as to keep possession of the land. Remember, God essentially warned the Ten Commandments are a constitution of freedom for a free people. A free people must be a people obedient to God or else risk losing their freedom. This is where what is probably the most famous passage from Joshua appears. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua chapter 24 verse 15. 
That advice might seem obvious given all the Lord had done for this people. It would, however, turn out to be much needed advice because the very next generation of Israelites grew up and apparently grew bored with their parents' tales of religion. This is the setting for the book of Judges. It is a recurring theme throughout the book that God's people at first come off a sort of spiritual high, full of goodwill and obedience, and gradually descend into complacency, then compromise, then disobedience, then idolatry and wickedness. God sends them judgment, often in the form of armies invading from the surrounding nations. Then the people cry out for help, and God sends a judge to call them to repentance, lead revival, and chase away their enemies. Deborah, Gideon, Samson, among many others, were such judges. But no sooner did the judge pass away than the people were falling away again, and the cycle repeated. A refrain in the book highlights this common moral decline apart from some authority. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. There may have been no king, but some of the figures foreshadow the Messiah. Samson, for example, is a special holy warrior of God who sacrifices his own life to destroy the enemies of God. The brief and unique book of Ruth highlights the path to the Messiah. This touching story of love and redemption features a gentleman who marries a poor immigrant girl, raises her to a higher social status, and provides her with heirs. Her child happens to be Obed, who then fathers Jesse, who then fathers the famous David. David will, of course, be a king of Israel and the line of the Messiah. The lack of a king during the period of the judges and Ruth, however, seemed to be more of a concern on the part of the people than of God. God had given a small set of laws to provide for the event of a king, but the law of Moses really expected the people to be a moral and responsible in a much more democratic way than to need a centralized ruler, which kings tend to become. The books of Samuel record the transition between the period of the judges and the period of the kings of Israel. Samuel is the last of the judges and also the first of the prophets, as we will later discuss. And he lives through the period in which the nation of Israel makes the poor choice of erecting a king like all the nations around them. The first of the kings is Saul, and he is a wicked man, though in large part a successful military leader, at least at first. He will be succeeded by a few dozen others over the next four and a half centuries or so. During Saul's reign, the nation of Israel is challenged by the Philistines, one of whom is the giant Goliath. It is here that the ambitious and faithful shepherd boy David emerged as a national hero. Half of the first book of Samuel recounts the further exploits of David, his turbulent relationship to Saul, and Saul's attempt to kill David, 
until Saul's death at the end of the book. 2 Samuel picks up with David ascending to the throne in a strongly divided nation. He works hard to overcome the rift between those loyal to him and those loyal to Saul's son. He succeeds temporarily, but his own sins mount up and lead to division and loss within his own house. The books of Kings and Chronicles are two overlapping accounts of the same history with slightly different perspectives and places. Chronicles also overlaps somewhat with Samuel and the story of Saul. They also each contain some material that the other does not. In the story of David, we learn from Chronicles that David desired to build a tremendous temple or house for God. God, however, decided that David had been involved in too much warfare and bloodshed, and he wanted his house to be built by a man of peace. The job would be left to David's son, Solomon. One of David's last important acts was to compile the materials and make preparations for his son to get the job done after David's death. Solomon exceeded David in glory, wealth, wisdom, and fan fame, so much so that his wealth and wisdom became world famous. He also, however, exceeded in the lust for power, riches, and women. It is here that the fallacy of seeking national glory in a king like the other nations has its consequences. The few rules that God had given Israel for regulating a king was merely to check his power. A king in Israel was not allowed to have a large treasury, a standing army, forming alliances, or multiple wives. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. The long history of the Hebrew rulers gradually violated these rules, starting as early as some of the judges. Solomon represents the apex of violation in all these regards. He had over 700 wives and 300 concubines in Haram. He had tens of thousands of horses and chariots, forbidden by law. He also had so much gold and silver that his ordinary drinking vessels were all solid gold, and all silver was counted as small change in his court. While God was allowing Solomon to build his temple, He was also setting the nation up for a massive failure in terms of their false views of success and national security. Their money, wealth, and sex were to be their downfall. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took over after him, but much of the nation refused his tyrannical rule. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel set up another king instead. From this point, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, northern and southern. They would never again be reunited under the Old Covenant. From this point on, the books of Kings and Chronicles record the various successions of kings in both kingdoms. Their stories largely replay the same cycle as the judges, except that many of the kings themselves were the source of wickedness, Some kings would institute idolatry and wickedness. Others would lead repentance and revival. Ultimately, wickedness overtook both kingdoms and God determined to judge both in their own time by sending them into captivity. 
The northern kingdom called Israel, or later Samaria, was ended around 720 BC by the Assyrians. The Assyrian government dispersed the people of the northern kingdom all across the land north of the Middle East. Their scattered remnants are after this called the diaspora, meaning the scattered or the dispersed. The southern kingdom, called Judah, lasted a little longer. It underwent a revival under King Josiah, but the effects were short-lived. The Babylonians invaded and began taking captive the people in the 600s BC. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's forces overran Jerusalem and completely destroyed the Temple of Solomon. The Babylonian captivity would last as a punishment until God allowed the people to return. This long process started in 539 BC, but did not come to anything like completion until groups began returning between 458 and 431 BC. The Return from Exile During the Babylonian captivity, Persia conquered Babylon and inherited the Jewish land and captives. The remaining historical books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, fast forward to the Persian period and the time of the return of the exiles. Ezra begins with the first year of the reign of the Persian king Cyrus. It notes that God stirred the heart of Cyrus to rebuild the Jewish temple and start to allow the Jews to return. Ezra begins with the first year of the reign of the Persian king Cyrus. It notes that God stirred the heart of Cyrus to rebuild the Jewish temple and start to allow the Jews to return. Ezra was a biblical lawyer and teacher who is sent to train the generation of returning Jews in Jerusalem in the law of Moses. Esther appears last of the three in the order of the Bible, but actually takes place before Nehemiah historically. Esther was a Jewish girl taken into court of Azarus, also known to history as Xerxes, because of her beauty. She kept her Jewish identity secret and won favor in the court of women, and she was chosen to be a new bride for King Xerxes. From this position, she found herself in a precarious but key position to stop a plot by a wicked nobleman, Haman, who secretly desired to destroy the Jews from the land. Despite being the king's bride, it was still a death sentence to approach the king unless he extended his favor. Esther puts her life at risk in order to go before him to reveal her Jewish identity and plead for her people. When Haman's plot is discovered, the king fumes in anger toward him and sentences him to execution. He is eventually hung on the very gallows he himself had prepared for the Jews he targeted. Xerxes decrees that the Jews can defend themselves with lethal force, and they do so successfully. Nehemiah picks up a little after this. He is a cupbearer to the succeeding Persian king Artaxerxes. He was concerned that even though the temple had been rebuilt and many Jews returned already, 
the city walls of Jerusalem still remain fallen. He returned with the king's blessing to rebuild the walls. His story overlaps with the work of Ezra, whose plan to teach the Jewish people appears in Nehemiah chapters 8 through 10. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 2 and 8. As the people embrace such teaching, they begin to make reforms in their lives and society. A nationwide revival breaks out with great hope that the nation of Israel has finally been restored from captivity. There were, however, some vital considerations still outstanding. Israel's History and Prophecy The historical books of the Bible, as we will see, overlap in time period with the remaining books of the Old Testament. These books include poetry books, the Psalms, Proverbs, etc. These were, in fact, mostly written by David and Solomon in their day. Likewise, the many books of the prophets appeared during the times of the kings, chronicles, and the exiles. Many of these contain historical passages and references to historical events that were, from their perspective, past, present, and future as well. The book of the prophet Daniel provides a good transitional look between the historical books and the prophets, for example. His own story occurs during the first exile of the southern kingdom into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. The book contains substantial historical accounts of interactions with Nebuchadnezzar and the succeeding ruler Darius, but the second half of it contains amazing passages of prophecies of future events. Some of these will relate to the return of the Jews from the exile. Others will relate to even more distant future times, when the Messiah would come and the great changes in the covenant would occur. This and many more examples show that Israel's history was tied to its past and future, relating to the law and the promises of God. Conclusion Some people find extended historical narratives boring. Others find great delight in the many tales of heroic exploits by men and women of faith. The historical books of the Old Testament contain many things to train our thinking about God's message and his faithfulness to his people, as well as our response to him and to each other. These books relate to the overarching theme that we need God for all aspects of our life beginning with our most basic spiritual maturity as individuals, all the way up to the institutions of power throughout society. Israel's history shows us that even when we start with a great constitution and free people, our own spiritual fears and deficiencies can lead to societies based on outward wealth, fame, glory, sex, and power. We can build great institutions while inwardly our families and societies are full of division, greed, and corruption. Only oppression and a form of 
exile for all of us will result. Struggles over politics and national reform efforts in such an environment cannot save us. We need something greater and something that will transform us personally more deeply and in a more foundational way. We will start to see these themes developed with the personal, spiritual, and social all mixed together, looking to a higher figure when we turn to the poetic books of the Bible.